Well, we've enjoyed three baptisms this morning, and now we're going to look at three more. There are three baptisms in this text. Uh, That was not planned. That was God's providence um, that we would land in this text on a baptism Sunday. Um, You're going to see three baptisms that are described by Luke in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 22. The first one is mentioned in verses 15 and 16, where John prepares the people for the receiving of the Messiah through a baptism of repentance. The second baptism that's mentioned is in verses 16 and 17, where John anticipates Jesus baptizing the people with the Holy Spirit and fire. And then there's a third baptism in verses 18 through 22, where Jesus himself is baptized and identifies with the people by a baptism in water. So those are the three baptisms we're going to look at in Luke chapter 3, verses 15 to 22 this morning. And we're going to consider the question, what we learn from these three baptisms. What do we learn from these three baptisms? I want to go ahead and give you the lesson up front, and then we're going to unpack it as we work our way through the text. These three baptisms call us, first of all, to seek salvation in Jesus. Second, to flee incineration from Jesus. And third, to enjoy identification with Jesus. Seek salvation in Jesus, flee incineration from Jesus, and enjoy identification with Jesus. Number one, first baptism. John's baptism of repentance for the people in the wilderness calls us to seek salvation in Jesus. This is the first baptism that is mentioned in verses 15 and 16. Let's read those verses again. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. Now we considered this last week, so we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on it this morning. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. He was sent to fulfill the role as messianic forerunner based on Isaiah 40 and Malachi 3 to prepare the people of Israel to receive their Messiah, and people were going out to John in the wilderness to be baptized by him. Now, what was the fundamental lesson that we saw last week concerning John's baptism? It was the need for repentance. We talked about that extensively uh, in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 14 last week. John the Baptist explains his baptism in verse 8 as a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 16 underscores this and what we just read when John said that he baptized the people with water. And Matthew 3.11, Matthew's own gospel, gives us a commentary on that when he says that he baptized people with water for repentance. So Matthew and Luke are in agreement under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that John's baptism was one of repentance. We also read in Matthew chapter 3, verse 6, that the people confessed their sins as they were baptized in the Jordan by John. So being baptized by John, receiving John's baptism, was a demonstration and a recognition that one was a sinner, it was a desire for spiritual cleansing, and it was a commitment to follow God's law in anticipation of the Messiah's soon arrival. In other words, John's baptism was an expression of seeking salvation in Christ, It was an expression of repentance. It was a turning from reliance upon ourselves for salvation and instead relying completely on the free mercy of God that is extended to us in Christ. Embedded in John's baptism 
is this reminder that wrath is coming and forgiveness of sins is needed. And this forgiveness is received as we express our faith in God's promise, turn from our sin, and entrust ourselves to the mercy of the Messiah. John's baptism reminds us that God has provided a means of escaping His wrath and that that will ultimately come through the redemption that's provided in and through Jesus Christ. John prepared the way for Christ by calling people to acknowledge their sin and their need for salvation. His baptism, therefore, was something of a kind of a purification ceremony that was meant to ready the people's hearts to receive their Savior and to seek salvation in Him alone. That's the first baptism. John's baptism teaches us to seek salvation in Jesus. We'll come back to application at that point near the end of the sermon. Secondly, second baptism mentioned in our text in verses 16 through 19 are, is the baptism that John predicts is going to come after his baptism. It's a symbolic baptism, but nevertheless, it is a real baptism. It's the baptism that Jesus will give as he baptizes the people with the Holy Spirit and with fire, which teaches us that the second baptism is meant to help us flee incineration from Jesus. Baptism not only teaches us to seek salvation in Jesus, but also to flee incineration from Jesus. Notice verse 16, the second half. John says, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He, that is Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So we see in John, or verse 15, that people were coming out to John and as they saw him baptizing person after person after person and these people confessing their sins and repenting, many concluded, this must be the Messiah. John the Baptist must be the Messiah. Look at these large crowds of people going down into the wilderness to be baptized by him. But John is very keen on reminding the people that he is merely preparing the way for the Messiah. He is not the Messiah himself. In fact, he says of Christ that Christ is mightier than him, and the strap of whose sandals he is not worthy to stoop down and untie. Now, we don't typically wear these kinds of sandals that would be other people would be stooping down and untying, so it might be helpful to understand what John means by saying this. In those days, it was customary for students uh, who generally didn't pay tuition to follow their teacher and show devotion by performing menial acts of service for their teachers. A great teacher hardly had to lift a finger. His students did almost everything. That is, except untie his sandals. In fact, a one ancient rabbi records the following about such a practice. Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosing of his sandal throng. Because that would be going one step too far. That would be degrading and dehumanizing to a student. And they couldn't be compelled by their teacher to do such a thing. But notice what John the Baptist says. John the Baptist wasn't even worthy to do that. He saw himself as the lowest of the lowest of the low. 
compared to the immense and immeasurable worth of the one who was coming after him. It says a lot about John's character. And John indicates in the text three ways that Jesus will be superior to him and why his baptism is more important than even the baptism that John himself is performing. First, John says that Jesus will be more powerful than him. He says he is mightier than I. Second, Jesus is more prestigious than John, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to stoop down and untie. And third and finally, Jesus is a greater purifier than John is, because while John baptizes the people with water, Jesus is going to come and baptize them with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John is not the only one who's going to be baptizing, is he? John speaks of Jesus, who himself will baptize, not with water, although Jesus did do some of that, but with the Holy Spirit and fire. Now there's some debate about the meaning of this phrase, the Holy Spirit and fire. What do we mean by Jesus baptizing the people with the Holy Spirit and fire? Is it referring to two different things? That is, he's going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit and with fire, or are they referring to the same thing? Is he going to baptize people with Holy Sp the Holy Spirit and fire? You get the distinction? It's either one thing or it's two things. And there's good exegetical ground for both positions. Let me give you both uh, positions right now. For those who would see baptism and the Holy Spirit as one thing, all you have to do is think of it as akin to something of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, where we are told in Acts 1 that Christ would send the Holy Spirit, and then in chapter 2, we read the following concerning the coming of the Holy Spirit as manifested in fire. Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 4, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So you have the manifestation of the Holy Spirit baptizing the people and a manifestation of fire that accompanies that baptism. However, there are others who see, and I would probably count myself among them, that see the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire as distinct things based on the next verse. John 3.17. Notice what John says concerning this baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire in verse 17. He says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So you've got this... Two ideas being communicated in verse 17 about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire. One is going to be where the Son, the Messiah, has his winnowing fork in his hand and he's going to clear his threshing floor, but he's going to do two things as he clears it. He's going to gather the wheat that's on the floor into his barn and he's going to send the chaff out to be burned. So the image appears to be one of judgment and purification. In Scripture, the Lord's judgment is frequently depicted as fire. Fire can do two things, right? It can both destroy and purify. In Scripture, those who do not trust in Christ will suffer the eternal fire of God's wrath. But those who do believe in the Messiah and place their trust in Christ alone 
will not be condemned with those who impenitently reject Christ or do harm to His people. Jesus' ministry is going to draw a line down the center of humanity. Those of faith will be purified and brought into God's eternal storehouse of blessing, and those who reject Christ will be burned up and separated from His grace and favor forever. So without spirit baptism, we get fire baptism. If we're not baptized by the Holy Spirit, we're baptized with fire. So how then are we baptized with the Holy Spirit? I think Acts chapter 11 is a helpful chapter for us to spend just a few minutes in. We're not going to spend much time. But in Acts chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, we read the following. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how He said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now who's the I and who's the them? It's Peter who's the I, and the them are those in Cornelius' house. In Acts chapter 11, we get the recounting of Peter's return to Jerusalem after leading the Gentile Cornelius and his household to faith in Christ. Cornelius is described as a God-fearing man and a Roman centurion, and he had sent for Peter that he might hear a message from Peter. And Peter preached the gospel at Cornelius' house And when he did, the Spirit came on the gathered group of Gentiles, much like they had the Jews on the day of Pentecost. And in Jerusalem, when Peter got back there in Acts chapter 11, those of the circumcision, that is the Jewish, the the Jews themselves, took issue with Peter that he was going out to the Gentiles to preach the Jewish Messiah. And so Peter, compelled to offer a defense, says in verse 17, If God gave to them the same gift as He gave to us after believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? In other words, the Gentiles are receiving the Holy Spirit by faith in Christ much the same way the Jews did earlier in the book of Acts. So the implication is clear. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not subsequent to faith. It occurs with faith. In fact, it in my, in, according to Scripture, it would create the faith that would lead to the baptism. So the implication is clear. The baptism of the Spirit happens at the time of conversion, not separate from it. What happened to the Jews in Acts 2 has now happened to the Gentiles and in, Act, in Acts 10. And Peter gives a commentary on it in Acts chapter 11. In Acts chapter 2, Jewish believers were baptized in the Spirit through faith in Jesus. In Acts chapter 10, Gentile believers were also baptized in the Spirit through faith in Jesus. Paul picks up on this idea when he writes later in his letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we were all made to drink of one Spirit. That's what the baptism of the Spirit is. We are sealed, indwelt, covered with the Holy Spirit when we exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In John's baptism, John's the baptizer, sinners were the baptized, water was the element, repentance was the result. In the second baptism that we're considering now, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Jesus is the baptizer, New believers are the baptized. 
The Spirit is the element, and incorporation into Christ's body is the result. So here's the good news. The one from whom we need to be saved is the one who has come to save us. That's John's point. When he calls the people to seek salvation in Jesus, at the same time, he's calling them to flee incineration from that same Jesus. The one from whom we need to be saved is the one who has come to save us. We flee incineration from Jesus by seeking salvation in Jesus. And as we do so, we will enjoy identification with Jesus, which is the third baptism that we come to now. Enjoying identification with Jesus. So first baptism, John's baptism of repentance, seeking salvation in Jesus. Second baptism, Jesus baptizing with the Holy Spirit in fire, calling us to flee incineration from Jesus. And third, Jesus' own baptism by John, calling us to enjoy identification with Jesus. So John had exhorted the people, we've seen this this week and last week, to prepare for the Messiah by submitting to his baptism of repentance. And then suddenly, the Messiah appears to be baptized by John. Look at verse 21. Now when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, what? When all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized? Now if you're paying attention, that should raise some questions for you. Matthew records it this way in his gospel. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. So Matthew gives us the further commentary that Luke just kind of shrinks down. Luke doesn't give us that dialogue but he does tell us essentially the same thing that Matthew tells us, which is coming to be baptized by John to take his baptism of repentance on himself as the Messiah in order to fulfill all righteousness. It's clear from the passage in the chapter that the Jews who need to repent are coming to John for baptism. They come for the forgiveness of their sins. But Jesus has no sin. John has already said this. Behold, as he's coming down the hill, presumably the hill, maybe he's walking across the plain, we don't know, but coming into view, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, John said in John 1.29. Jesus is the sin bearer. He's not the sin committer. But yet, Jesus enters John's water, the Jordan River, to be baptized by John to identify with the sinful people he has come to save. He consents to be counted as if he were a sinner, even though he isn't, to identify with all those who are. This act foreshadows the time on the cross when Jesus will die for the sins of his people, as we read in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake he made him to be sin, 
who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This act of exchange in which Jesus takes our sin and gives us His righteousness is depicted symbolically beforehand when He is baptized by John in the Jordan. And as Jesus is baptized, this is what we read in verse 22. He was praying, the end of verse 21, the heavens were open, what happened? And the Holy Spirit, verse 22, descended on Him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. So the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus in the form of a dove, perhaps signifying the inauguration of a new creation. Remember Genesis chapter 1, where the Holy Spirit is hovering over the face of the waters. And in Acts chapter or Genesis chapter 8, after the flood, again, the presence of a dove appears as a sign of Noah and the new creation that has come post-flood. And then the Father speaks sweet words of affirmation and affection for His beloved Son. And here's the glorious good news of the gospel, dear ones. When we exercise faith in Christ and entrust ourselves to Him, seeking salvation in Him, fleeing incineration from Him, those same words of affirmation and affection are not only given to Christ, but they are transferred to all of us who are in Christ. Because with our lives bound up in His finished work, we are the recipients of God's blessing pronounced over Jesus at His baptism. Beloved daughters and sons with whom the Father is well pleased. And we don't have to wonder about that. Jesus, when He was praying in John 17, said the following to His Father in verses 23 and 26. Father, You have loved them, that is my disciples, You have loved my disciples even as You have loved Me. That the love with which You have loved Me may be in them. In Jesus, the Father takes as much delight in us as He does in His own beloved Son. In the language of Zephaniah 3.17, the Father takes great delights in us, will quiet us with His love, and rejoices over us with loud singing. In Jesus, the Father invites us to address Him intimately. He is our Abba. He is our Daddy, our Papa, our Father. This is how God sees us. It's also how God wants us to see Him. In Christ, we are safe with God. In Christ, we are treasured by God, and deeply so, because through the finished work of Jesus, we can now assume the identity that God has given us. We can define ourselves not as sinners in need of forgiveness, although we do, but that's not our identity anymore. We are those who have been radically loved by God. We are simultaneously sinner saints with emphasis on saints. We are defined in Christ only as the latter. Because in Christ, we are not a sinner. In Christ, we are a saint. And being in Christ means that God considers us holy. He considers us perfect. We have nothing left to prove. The impeccable, virtuous life of Jesus, His love, His joy, His peace, His patience, His kindness, His faithfulness, His gentleness, His self-control are forever credited to us because of the cross. And notice 
This pronouncement from the Father comes on the Son before He's done one lick of ministry. He hasn't done anything. He hasn't done anything to earn the Father's benediction except be a son. (laughs) And dear ones, that's the same way for us. We get the Father's affirmation and affection before we ever do anything for Him. That's what fuels a life of love and service to God, is knowing that we get to love our Father back because of the way He has loved us. Through faith, we're blameless in God's eyes. We're positionally perfect, not because of our goodness, but because of His. In Jesus, we are also loved by God in the longest, widest, highest, and deepest way possible. Nothing can separate us from that love, not even ourselves. Therefore, we've got nothing left to hide. We can strip off our religious masks, we can leave the imposter behind, and we can start living naked and unashamed before the judge who has now become our Savior. As a child, we're emancipated from being a slave that has to earn and prove and measure up. The burden is not on you to become your own Savior. All the pressure is off, and you can put your heart entirely in God's hands knowing that He has also put His heart in yours. The Father's benediction, His irrevocable, paternal blessing rests over us our entire lives. You can wake up every single morning knowing that the first thoughts that God has of you is this is my beloved with whom I am well pleased. How would that change our lives if we actually told ourselves that and believed it? Had the gall to believe the gospel enough that it was true. Through Christ and because of Christ, we are pronounced as God's beloved. We can enjoy deep rest because the last words of Jesus' life, it is finished, is the first word for ours. It is finished. This means the ominous threat of God's judgment is not a threat to us. On the cross, Jesus took the punishment that our sins deserve, thus moving our judgment day from the future to Christ's past. We are forgiven for every single sin. The cross was God's final pronouncement made over us before any of us ever even drew our first breath. Through Christ, God is well pleased with us. Nothing can change that. But never forget, for us to gain the Father's benediction, Jesus had to lose it. At His baptism, Jesus received the good word from on high. But on the cross, He received the malediction from on high. He heard no good word from His Father. Nothing but silence, just deafening silence. The Word incarnate received silence from heaven. It was this malediction that opened heaven's heart and secured the Father's benediction for us. So how will we respond to these three baptisms? To seeking salvation in Jesus, fleeing incineration from Jesus, enjoying identification with Jesus. Well, will we seek salvation in Jesus and enjoy identification with Jesus? Or will we receive incineration from Jesus? Will we be wheat gathered into the barn or chaff prepared for the fire? Some of us this morning are in that second category. While we sit surrounded by many children of the King, we currently are in a state of being kindling for the king. But the good news is that today's the day of salvation. 
That's why Jesus hasn't come back yet. That's why you got to wake up this morning and come to church and hear the gospel so that you could become a child of the king and not be kindling for the king. As John says in his own gospel, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world would be saved through him. God doesn't want you to die. God doesn't want you to be kindling. He wants you to be a child. He wants you to embrace Christ. And that's why he is speaking this morning. It all depends on who we think the king is, doesn't it? That's what it boils down to. Is it Jesus or is it us? If we think we're the Messiah, the Christ, the King, which by the way, if you don't, here's the fundamental reason. If we don't embrace Jesus as the Messiah, it's not because we don't believe a Messiah doesn't exist. It's because we think we are. You have ultimate rights of, over your life. You are the King. You are the Christ. You are self-determining. You are self-authenticating. You are the one who is going to make a name for yourself. You're not going to give it to Jesus. I'm going to live my life, my way. I did it my way. Number one song of the funerals. That's what we do. We respond like Herod does in the text. What, how, Pastor Mark, you didn't read the Herod part. I know, I was waiting till now. So we can make that point. Look at verses 18 through 20. This is the way people who think they're the Christ respond when John preaches good news. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. But Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this evil to them all that he locked up John in prison. So what's going on here? Well, we don't, again, we don't get the extended details that the other Gospels give us. But John was, was chastising the king, Herod, for marrying Herodias, who was the ex-wife of his half-brother. Herodias and Herod both had to divorce their spouses to marry one another, and marrying a close relative made their sin even worse. And since I can't get through a sermon without smuggling in some political application, let's go ahead and do that now. The church loses its prophetic witness when it is unwilling to call its kings on their divorces and sexual immorality. But we overlook it because the policies are good. Great way to gut the witness and prophetic power of the church in the next generation. Be like John. Call people on their junk, church. Your life is immoral and you are unfit to serve. That's what John would have done. That's what got him in jail. Christians don't want to do that because we don't want to go to jail. Go to jail, Christian if that's what it means to be faithful to your Christ. John chastised Herod, not for policies he didn't like, but who he was as a crooked and perverse person. They were Herodias and Herod both had to divorce their spouses to marry one another, and marrying a close relative made their sin even worse. So Herod had John arrested for speaking against his unlawful divorce and adultery, and eventually had John killed at the request of Herodias' daughter as she lewdly danced for him during a drunken party. What a legacy. What a legacy. Could have been so different. Kindling for the king, Herod was. Had the opportunity to embrace the good news. Said John preached it to him. 
was telling about the Messiah, was having none of it because he wanted his sex the way he wanted it. And that was his God. But there's another way that we can respond to John. We can respond like John, right? Who recognized Jesus as someone greater than him. He was the best man and Jesus was the bridegroom. And it was the best man's great joy to give up his place to the one whose sandals he wasn't even worthy to stoop down and untie. John said, he must become greater. I must become less. John said in John 3.30, you know, when Martin Luther learned that some who were following his teachings were beginning to call themselves Lutherans, his response was quintessentially humble and graphic and John the Baptist-like. He said, quote, What is Luther? The teaching is not mine, nor was I crucified for anyone, nor did I, poor stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call me the the children of Christ by my evil name? I simply taught, preached, wrote God's word, otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word did everything. And according to Jesus, among those born of women, there's not a resin anyone greater than John the Baptist. So here's the decision we have in front of us. Are we going to reject the Messiah so that we can, be, we can be the Messiah? So that other people who are going to be kindling for the king can affirm us in this temporary lifespan we have? Or are we going to give our lives to the true king, recognizing that he's greater than us, that he's the one who made us, that he's the one we're living for. We're just, we're just best men for him and best women who are seeking to serve and promote the bridegroom. He must become greater. We must become less. If so, Jesus will say of us, those are my people and there's nobody on earth greater than them. So who will be great in your life? Who will be the great one? You or Jesus? Whose praise will we pursue, friends? Will we be like John? and humble ourselves and embrace Christ and, pers- and put ourselves at his feet and pursue the praise of Christ, it landed in him in prison. It eventually got him killed, but he's in heaven. Or will we be like Herod and pursue the praise of the world? It might land us in a palace, but it will eventually be in hell. If we don't live a life that satisfies God, you will not live a life that satisfies you. Choose wisely. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the comfort that it brings and the conviction that it brings. Thank you for the warnings that it offers and also the benediction that it blesses us with. Thank you for those of us, the vast majority in this room, who are in Christ and seeking to follow and walk with him. Thank you that your eternal benediction rests on our lives because of what Christ has done. We are loved with an everlasting love. We are well pleased by our, with our, uh, with, by our Father because of our Savior and everything He has done in His life, death, burial, and resurrection for us. Thank you, Jesus, for securing for us the eternal benediction of the Father over our lives. You didn't purchase the love of the Father for us. The Father sent you because He loved us. But because of your work, we are, the, the Father is well pleased with us. And His favor rests upon us forever and ever and ever. And for those of us who are yet in this room, who have yet to acknowledge Jesus as King, who have yet to 
stoop down and untie the sandals on his feet to recognize that he is the great one, that we must become less, that he might become greater, who have yet to acknowledge his lordship in their lives and exercise faith in his death and resurrection and pledge their lives to him in baptism and join the church and follow Christ in this community of faith. Lord, would you move them out of out of the threshing off the threshing floor into the barn. Bring them as wheat into your barn. Do not leave them to be blown away like the chaff that will be burned up with unquenchable fire. And as our sister Jamie even spoke in her testimony, now's the time. Here's the window. Lord, may we not resist. May we not resist. May we come all the way in and say, Jesus, save me. Save me from my sins. I repent. I acknowledge you as the great God and Savior that you are. I recognize that I cannot save myself. There's nothing I can do. There's no amount of good deeds that will pay for my sin. There's no amount of righteousness I can try to perform that will meet the standard. It's you and you alone who can save. And may we look to you this morning, those of us who need to do just that, and encourage those of us who are your people to live in the enjoyment of identification with you, knowing that our lives are safely hidden with Christ and God, in whose name we pray. Amen.